Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, my guest is Cornell economics professor Robert Frank. Uh, I read his book, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work, uh, a couple months ago. It's a fascinating book. It's a book about how social environments profoundly shape our behaviors and how we may unlock the power of social influence. Uh, and, and to say this book changed many of my previous thinking about economics is, is an understatement, I would say, uh, because there are so many fascinating ideas from uh, behavioral contagion to consumption taxation that really changed the way I think about economics in so many ways. So uh, I, it's a great honor for me to have you on the show, Professor Frank. Thanks so much for, for taking the time joining me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Tiger. Uh, so, Professor Frank, why don't we dive right in? I kind of gave a very brief overview of the book, but to, to be honest, there's actually so many foundational ideas that are being put in. Uh, why don't we just start with a brief overview from your side, what you hope to accomplish with this book, and uh, we'll take it from there. Sure. Uh, the, the starting premise of the book is actually quite simple and uncontroversial. It's, it's the old social psychologist's maxim They've they've all not the person, and, and by that what they mean is that when we see somebody behave a certain way, our impulse is to ask ourselves what kind of a person would do such a thing, and and the psychologists say no, that's not the right way to think about it at all. Traits of character and personality aren't the the most important explanations for most behaviors we see out there. That instead, what we should look to is the the social forces that were surrounding the actor at the moment she made her decision about what to do. So if you're, if you're worried, for example, that your daughter will become a smoker, uh, it really doesn't help you at all to know that she's a science fiction fan or that she's a, a, a fan of the New York Yankees or that, that she's good in math. None of that is predictive. Uh, the one thing that will really tell you most about her risk of becoming a smoker is to know the fraction of her close friends who smoke. And, and it's a huge effect. It, there's no other effect remotely close to it. So if her, her close friends uh, who are smokers, if that percentage went from 20 to 30, say, she would become 25% more likely to take up smoking. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's unrivaled by any other influence. Anyway, that's uh, completely uncontroversial. The, the social environment shapes what we do uh, for ill in many cases, as in that example, but often for good too. Uh, we follow good examples as well as bad ones. Uh, what's also uncontroversial is that the social environment itself is a consequence of the choices we make. Uh, the causal arrows go in the second direction also uh, we don't remark much about that. Nobody pays much attention to that second direction because our own effect on the social environment is relatively small. It's, it's negligible for all practical purposes. Nobody would worry, oh, I shouldn't become a smoker. I'll make others more likely to smoke. Uh, and yet, since the social environment influences us so profoundly, isn't it worth thinking about whether there are steps we could take to encourage people to act as if they cared about how their own choices would affect the social environment? Uh, unless the, the 
answer to asking that question, well, there's just nothing, nothing we can do about it. If, if that's not the answer, uh, then of course we ought to be thinking about that. And they're really, uh, when, once you do start investigating, there are a whole host of simple steps we can take that will induce people to behave as if they care about their effect on the social environment. Uh, and in the smoking example, it was very simple. We taxed smoking. We gave spurious reasons for why we did it, but the fact is that we did tax it more and more heavily. Uh, mostly uh, with smoking, the tax itself has a very uh, minor influence because smoking is one of the most highly addictive behaviors out there. I had a, a friend who was a heroin addict. He told me that it was much, much easier to give up heroin than it had been for him to give up smoking. Uh, it's, it's very high. So we tax smoking, that makes it more expensive. Uh, most smokers uh, plow ahead anyway, they keep smoking. But some either do not or cannot, they don't have enough money to, to buy cigarettes, so they don't start or they, or they quit. It's, it's that that gave us the leverage. So when, when a few people didn't start, or quit, that meant every peer group that they were in had fewer smokers in it. That meant others were less likely to start or more likely to quit. And so the smoking rate uh, fell from uh, more than 50% in, in many population groups to, to about 12 or 13% today. And, and that's why uh, I have four adult sons. None of them is a smoker. Uh, I, I told a, a friend once that if they'd grown up when I did, uh, at least two of them would be smokers, I thought. Uh, one of my sons was in the room and, uh, and immediately asked, which two? And I said, well, my oldest son, David, I was pretty sure he would. And uh, my youngest son, uh, I was confident he would have been a smoker too. What about me? This was son number three who asked the question. <laughs> he seemed offended that I didn't think right. he would have been a smoker. Well, all right, maybe you would have been too. <laughs> make three out of the four. Uh, my, my second son wouldn't have smoked no matter when he'd been born. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. But, you know, it's a great thing that none of them smokes. Every parent wants uh, his or her kids to grow up to be non-smokers. And it was just a simple step. You know, we justified it at the time by saying that, well, uh, there were these new studies coming out of Japan that showed that exposure to secondhand smoke uh, increased the likelihood of various illnesses in 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 surrounding people who didn't smoke. And so, you know, we could invoke then the familiar uh, harm principle from John Stuart Mill and say, well, we, we need to pr protect innocent bystanders from the harm caused by secondhand smoke. Well, that's valid, but in fact, the harm from secondhand smoke is minuscule compared to the harm you cause when you take up smoking, which the main harm you, you cause is to make others more likely to smoke. Got it. And I think this is the idea, a story that you first talked about in the introductory uh, chapter of your book, which is about smoking. And I, I think uh, one of the central claims that you made is that we have a powerful and legitimate public policy interest in encouraging socially beneficial means and discouraging uh, socially harmful ones, which means um, for something like smoking, you should really actively discourage it because uh, it's not something that once you do it, you just harm yourself you also encourage other people to do it. And that, that's kind of the idea. Yeah, I, I, I call these uh, behaviors, I call them behavioral externalities. Uh, and, and as you know, 
economists have long understood that uh, the, the ordinary externalities that we write about, smoke, noise, congestion, uh, there's a very standard treatment for that. Uh, it's misleadingly attractive for producers to emit smoke into the air because filtering out costs money and, and we let them do it for free. Uh, and so the, the efficient, direct solution to that kind of a problem is to tax emissions of smoke into the air. And we know that when we've done that, it's been hugely effective and, and very fast in getting emissions levels down. Uh, there's absolutely no principled uh, way of distinguishing between those kinds of externalities and behavioral externalities. Uh, and so, of course, everybody wants to be able to behave however, however it pleases him or her in any situation. But, but as, as Mill emphasized, your, your right to do as you please stops when you cause undue harm to others. He didn't say undue harm, he just said harm. He must have meant undue harm because you can't do anything at all without causing some kind of harm real or imagined to somebody somewhere. So, so you shouldn't have the right to cause undue harm to others. And, and uh, in the smoking case, I, I focus on that one so strongly because it's, it's the simplest, clearest case. Most people who smoke don't even want to smoke. You know, they wish they didn't smoke. And uh, to, to claim that they have the right to make others more likely to smoke, well, you could say, well, it's, it's the responsibility of others to decide which peers to emulate and which ones to avoid. Okay, I like the sentiment that motivates that objection, but what about the parents? You know, they've done everything they could to raise their kids to be non-smokers. Uh, if, the, if the environment has more smokers in it, uh, millions of those parents are going to fail to achieve what was a perfectly laudable and legitimate goal for them to have been pursuing at great cost in many cases. And, and why permit that harm uh, if there's a simple way to discourage it? And I think it's the same logic even in today's coronavirus crisis is that if nobody around you wears masks, then there seems to be a social stigma around wearing masks and then people don't wear masks. It would be so easy to get the fraction of the population wearing masks to shoot up to close to 100%. You know, if the, if the people that we see out there, the people in positions of responsibility were all wearing masks and, and encouraging others to do likewise, then everybody would do it and nobody would complain and feel put upon. You know, now it's, it's this, uh, you're not the boss of me, silly objection, as if to say, I have a right to put you and your family members at greater risk of infection and death. Uh, what, what gives you that right? And I think that's something that people didn't initially grasp at the beginning stage of the crisis, is that their action of whether they wear a mask or not, whether they get infected or not, are very much, you know, uh, kind of influential to other people's health yeah. as well. Uh, yeah, it makes that, a big difference. Exactly. So, uh, and there's another central idea that you explored is how Adam Smith's uh, concept of invisible hand has been somewhat greatly misconstrued uh, during or, or overblown um, by, by the free marketeers. And, and we want to think that uh, some, somehow individuals make the most rational choices, but you explain how individuals are constantly under the influence, like the title of your book, uh, because they're influenced by others' behaviors. The implication is that their actions uh, are often not made in the most rational sense. Would you mind just quickly explaining more about that idea? Sure. I, I think uh, 
we can probably date uh, from the time of Reagan and Thatcher the 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 renaissance of enthusiasm for the invisible hand idea. Uh, the the modern disciples of Adam Smith are much more enthusiastic about the invisible hand idea than Smith ever was. Uh, I mean, Smith's contribution was incredibly important. You know, he showed. Uh, and it wasn't new uh, even then. He showed that that producers introduce cost-saving innovations and product quality improvements, not for the good of society. That wasn't their motive. They were trying to steal market share from their rivals, and that was a good strategy to do it. Uh, I think that that much had been known long before he wrote. But but what he added was that. That's not the end of the story. Uh, rival producers don't sit twiddling their thumbs when that happens. They respond. They imitate the cost-saving innovations, the product design improvements, and there's a competitive dogfight. And when the dust settles, the consumers are often the ultimate beneficiaries of all that churning. They get better quality products at lower prices. The producers, uh, in the end, earn only enough to cover their costs. It's win-win uh, all the way around. Uh, that's the beauty of the invisible hand narrative. But Smith knew perfectly well that that wasn't uh, something that you could count on happening in every circumstance. Turn selfish people loose and we'll always get the best of all possible worlds. No, he didn't believe that. I think if he were alive and writing today, he would be regarded by many as a wishy-washy liberal. Uh, he'd be wanting to intervene in a lot of ways that I, th I think are ham-handed uh, and, and, and ill-advised. But what's true is not so much that uh, markets fail because people are irrational. I think the behavioral economics movement has stressed uh, that aspect of market failure, and it's a legitimate source of market failure. Uh, uh, more common, though, and more important, in my view, is that markets fail because what it makes sense for the individual to do is often squarely at odds with what it makes sense for us collectively to do. So, so maybe the simplest example is when you're at a concert, somebody stands in front of you to see better, you can't see, so you stand up too, and pretty soon everybody's standing, and yet in that situation, nobody sees any better than if everybody had remained comfortably seated. You're not irrational to have stood. You don't regret having stood. That was your best option, but uh, taken uh, from the collective vantage point, it was, it was stupid, it was irrational collectively, but not individually. And that's true for just a whole host of behaviors that we engage in. It's attractive for us to do them individually, and yet when we all do them, we get a bad outcome. Maybe the military arms race narrative is, is another uh, uh, one where the logic of, of, of that problem emerges in a very clear way. Uh, each nation wants to be secure against aggression. It stop, stockpiles arms to that end. It doesn't know how much uh, its rival has stockpiled to be sure uh, uh, it's safe. It stockpiles a little extra. The rival does that too. And so they both go ahead stockpiling arms. But what we know is that when they each have larger stocks of weaponry, the risk of catastrophe goes up, not down. And so that's why participants in military arms races are so keen in many circumstances, especially if they're evenly matched, 
to sign enforceable agreements that prohibit them from building as many bombs as they want to. Uh, to say that those agreements rob them of their freedom to build as many bombs as they want to is just to miss the point entirely. Of course, that's what they do. That's the entire objective of a military arms control agreement because they know that if you're free to build as many bombs uh, as you want to, you'll build far too many. Uh, those resources be way better devoted to schools and hospitals and other things. So when we, when we see situations like that, we instantly recognize that we can't state category that if individuals want to do it, then it's best that we let, allow them to do it. No, we, we restrain ourselves uh, in, in countless situations that have that uh, incentive structure. And, and that's true of how we spend our money. That's true of, of uh, the, the toxins we emit into the environment. It's true of a whole host of things. I think people generally understood that individual interests might not be uh, precisely aligned with collective interests, but people didn't realize about this concept of positional good versus non-positional good, which is this concept you brought up. Positional good is uh, described by British economist Fred Hirsch as things that derive their value from uh, their scarcity or, or rather comparing to other people, the relative value, whereas the non-positional good uh, kind of um, do not depend as much on it. Would you mind just telling us a little bit more about those two concepts and how they uh, play in, in uh, what you just explained above? Yeah, you, you can see uh, may, maybe one of the clearest examples in everyday life is, is, the, is the notion that uh, education has value uh, in part for, for uh, what it enables you to do in absolute terms, but it, it, it's also valuable for what it says about you in relative terms. Her, Hirsch himself wrote that uh, the value of my education depends on how much the man ahead of me in the job line has. Uh, it's it's uh, not how well educated I am in an absolute sense, but how well educated I am relative to the people I'm compare, competing against in the job market. Uh, in, in that sense, it's, it's really just making use of Charles Darwin's fundamental insight, which was, in my view, the, the, the observation that life in general is graded on the curve. It's not how big you are, it's not how strong you are, it's not how smart you are. It's how those qualities compare with the people you're competing directly against that really matter. And so, so in, in a, a parent's decision about what to, to, to spend uh, out of income on various goods that you could spend money on, uh, if, if you've got small kids, one of the, the key goals that you're pursuing is to get your kids into the best schools possible. And, and in the public schools in every country, the good schools are the ones located in more expensive neighborhoods. That's true everywhere. In France, uh, the schools everywhere in the country are, follow a national curriculum. They're on the same page of it every day of the year. Uh, they are required by law to spend the exact same amount per pupil uh, everywhere in the country, rich uh, uh, sector of the country or poor. But what's true in France still is that you want your kids to go to the schools in the more expensive neighborhood. 
that's where the schools of the more uh, higher income people uh, are going. They're better prepared when they start school. They're, the, the pace of learning will be higher inevitably in those schools. So what do you do? You have to bid for a house in the most expensive neighborhood you can afford. Uh, if you have access to your savings, you will withdraw money from those accounts in order to bid for a house in a better school district. You will take riskier jobs, thereby to earn a little bit of a pay premium to be able to bid more effectively for a house in a better school district. You will work two shifts if necessary to do that. There, there every morning you'll, you'll buy uh, a house in a, a location farther from the center and endure a punishing commute through an hour of heavy traffic each way, uh, morning and evening, if that's what you have to do, you'll work every margin in order to get into the best possible school district you can. And yet when everybody pursues steps like that, what happens? We merely bid up the prices of the houses in the better school district. When the dust settles, half of all kids go to bottom half schools, exactly the same as before. Because the schools are still the same schools. <laughs> yeah, the, the schools are evaluated in relative terms, much like everything else in life. Exactly. And, and I think by extension of that, one of the more mind-blowing ideas I read in your book, and I think uh, kind of counterintuitive to many people's initial perception, is that by imposing higher taxes on the rich, it will not actually hurt them that much because what the rich have utterly failed to recognize as you wrote is that their ability to bid successfully depends only on their relative disposal income which is completely unaffected by higher taxes in other words if everybody gets taxed more then the price of lamborghini or ferrari will also come down and you will not have to pay that much to get those scarcity goods anyways yeah i think uh the, the interesting thought experiment that, that works for me there is, is to compare a high tax country with a low tax country, uh, taxes being higher on the, on the wealthiest uh, uh, in each country, but lower in one than in the other. Uh, of course, when people have more after-tax income, they spend more. And so in the low tax country, they would be driving Ferraris, perhaps $300,000 cars, in the high tax country, they couldn't afford them. They would be driving the lowly Porsche 911 Turbo, which costs half as much, $150,000. Uh, and so then if you wonder who's happier in the two countries, the, the almost certain answer would be uh, that we would not be able to detect any measurable differences in the happiness level of the wealthy drivers in the two countries. Why? Because by the time you've gotten to the Porsche 911 Turbo, you've got every design feature that has any material influence on handling and, and performance of, it, uh, of any type that drivers care about. Uh, and in each case, uh, the drivers in each country, which, which, uh, and they don't interact with one another since they're, they're in distant locations, they're, they know they're driving the best car on the road in that local environment, and that's really what, what seems to matter uh, most saliently to them. So they'd be equally happy if everything else were the same in the two countries. But the rub is that everything else wouldn't be the same. So you, you can adopt however aggressive a view you want to about how wasteful government is. Oh, they build bridges to nowhere. They, they crown welfare queens by the hundreds every day. They're, they waste our tax money right and left. Okay, maybe they do. Look at the government budgets, you'll see in, in every case, a large fraction of the money spent uh, 
uh, is for things that voters seem to care about. It's, it's for trains, it's for uh, uh, repairing the roads and keeping the bridges from, from crumbling. Uh, those dollars that the high tax country raised, some of them are going to go into road maintenance. And so the, the operative question really in the end is not who's happier, the Ferrari driver in the low tax country or the Porsche driver in the high tax country when everything else is the same. It's which would you rather be, a wealthy Ferrari driver driving your Ferrari on roads riddled with foot deep tires, <laughs> or a Porsche driver driving your Porsche on roads that are well maintained, and that's not even an interesting question. You know, right. no, no serious driver would would choose to drive the Ferrari on pothole ridden roads. It's crazy. So yeah, the 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 implication of that thought experiment is that if you're rich and you have higher taxes that go to pay for public goods that benefit you people in the middle and poor people alike, uh, the sacrifice in consumption, if every rich person made it, wouldn't be painful at all, but the gain you'd get from the extra public investment would be uh, quite noticeably beneficial in the, in the way you experience your life. Since we're on the topic of taxation, maybe we should talk about your proposal for consumption tax, and maybe before that, uh, would you mind just quickly elaborating on this idea why to promote better environments, taxation is often more effective and less intrusive than regulation? It seems that there's so much stigmatization these days for taxation and certainly for regulation as well. But when people hear that, oh, if you're going to tax, you know, half of my income uh, to give it to the government, you know, people immediately freak out. Uh, no matter whether you tell them, oh, you'll get better healthcare benefits or better schooling, uh, they just feel a, a stringent, you know, urgency that they shouldn't get their wealth taken away. Yeah, I think there's some some very strange thinking about taxation, uh, and more of it now than there was uh, in 1980. Uh, the, there are large numbers of people in the U.S. We don't see this so much in other countries, but in the U.S., there's still a large number of people who will say to you with a straight face all taxation is theft. Uh, think about that. Uh, what's the alternative? You think taxation should be purely voluntary, that if you want to make a contribution to the, the collective, you can do that, but you know, uh, some people probably would make such contributions, but uh, over time they would see that their neighbors weren't making them their neighbors were living better than they were. Uh, they were essentially free riding on, on, on their own ef efforts to, to support, collect. they would stop paying taxes. And pretty soon there would be no tax revenue. If you didn't have any tax revenue, you wouldn't have a government. Uh, many of these same people who say tax, taxation is theft would say, oh yeah, that's great. Well, that's what we want, no government. Uh, but then if you didn't have a government, you wouldn't have an army you'd be invaded by some other country that had an army paid for by mandatory tax payments that they lever levy on their citizens. And then you'd end up paying mandatory taxes to that government. So, so to say that there shouldn't be mandatory taxes is just a completely stupid thing to say. You should, you, you're not entitled to be a participant in a, a civilized conversation on this subject, if that's what you say. So, so what are the interesting questions? Not whether we should tax, the interesting questions are what should we tax and how much should we tax it? Those are the only interesting questions. And 
in the in the domain of taxation my point has long been that we should not tax anything that is useful until we've run out of harmful things to tax uh, the the whole idea of Peguvian taxation, tax pollution, tax negative ex externalities, an old idea in, ex ex in economics. It's, it's thought to be more efficient than regulating pollution because uh, the, the very reason we see pollution in the first place is that it's costly to filter the smoke out and we let people do it for free. So if you charge them for doing it, then they become very creative at finding the cheapest possible ways to, to filter it out, uh, unless your goal is to have zero pollution and no rational society would want that. Uh, a rational society would filter out the smoke until the marginal cost of filtering out a little more gets to be higher than the benefit you'd get from having a slightly cleaner environment. If you don't believe that, then uh, you need to answer the question, why aren't you at home right now vacuuming up the dust from your apartment. Uh, there's more accumulating every moment you're not doing that. And if you think the optimal level of dirt in your apartment is zero, then you ought to be home cleaning it nonstop 24. No, we don't do that because we say there are other things we care about too. So letting people pay for the right to pollute lets them pollute if they have no alternative to polluting. So you, you essentially respect the freedom of people who have limited opportunities to behave dif differently. Uh, the ones who can alter their behavior most easily are the ones who do the lion's share of the pollution cleanup. Uh, that means we reduce the overall cost of the cleanup to the lowest possible level for any, any, any given level that we take out of the air. It's just the best way to go about this. And so... Sorry, Professor Frank, just yeah. to quickly clarify on that point. What if people uh, criticize that idea and say uh, you're essentially giving the large corporations a way to buy pollution as long as they paid the tax? Well, people did say that, in fact. That was <laughs> one of the objections. Oh, you're letting rich uh, firms pollute to their heart, heart's content. Uh, that, first of all, was not what the policy allowed. The policy said uh, one of the early examples of it was uh, a market for SO2 permits, tradable SO2 permit. You want to emit SO2 into the air? You need a permit. Well, there were a limited number of permits made available, and so you couldn't pollute as much as you wanted to. But the, think about the implicit model of behavior behind that objection. You know, why do firms pollute? That model suggests that they pollute because they derive pleasure from polluting. Uh, how, how utterly mind-bogglingly stupid that, that sentence is. They pollute because it's cheaper to pollute than not to pollute. If you charge them to pollute, they'll figure out ways not to pollute. So, so, so no, it's, it's, it's absolutely the, the sensible way to go about it. It's been studied, it works. Uh, uh, cities have imposed congestion fees. They limit congestion very quickly. The people who pay the biggest congestion fees are very happy about the policy. Uh, we, we should have taxed carbon emissions long ago. Uh, people object, oh, the, the poor could never pay the fees. Well, we don't need to charge on net if we use a heavy carbon tax and then take the revenue from that tax and give it back to the people who paid the tax in equal lump sum amounts. Uh, 
or we could even do it progressively, give, give all the money back to low and, and middle income families, then uh, the energy use uh, curve is very skewed. The, the worldwide 10% uh, of income earners at the top use half of all uh, energy. They, they emit half. So if you had a carbon tax, almost uh, all the revenue would come from high income people. If we gave the revenue back to mostly low and middle income people, the low and middle income families would get rebate checks every month that were more uh, uh, bigger than the amount they paid in carbon taxes. And they'd still have a very strong incentive to shift away from carbon intensive uh, goods to, to ones that have lighter footprints. What's not to like about that? Uh, why couldn't you sell 90% of the population on the wisdom of adopting a policy like that if you could get their attention long enough to explain it to them? So before we get into that idea about climate change, I think the major takeaway at this point for our listeners to, to really understand is that taxes have this kind of hidden, quote unquote, opportunity cost in the sense that if you raise taxes on beneficial activities like business payrolls, you are freeing up tax burdens that otherwise can be burdened shouldered by harmful activities and you actually end up dis discouraged savings. Every extra dollar you raise from a tax on a harmful activity is a dollar you can use to fix the roads and build <laughs> high-speed trains, but it's also instrumental in reducing the harm caused by those activities. And every dollar that you raise from a tax like that is a dollar less you need to raise from a tax on a beneficial activity. You mentioned payrolls. That's maybe the clearest example. We tax payrolls heav heavily, about 12.5% when you add the worker and the employer levies together, it's, it's a non-trivial uh, tax on the firm's decision about whether to hire a worker. There are lots of workers firms would wanna hire that they don't wanna hire now that we have this tax. Why would we wanna discourage firms from hiring workers? There's no harm caused by hiring workers. We wanna encourage that, not discourage it. So, tax harmful activities, don't tax useful activities. That should be the mantra guiding every tax policy discussion. Uh, many people would have said, well, you can't raise much revenue by taxing harmful activities. That's because they were uh, too blinded in their view of what constitutes harm. I mean, if you think of harm as only hitting somebody over the head with a baseball bat, yeah, there aren't that many things you can tax. But if you think of the things we do that harm one another more generally, uh, there, there's just an enormous latitude for raising revenue by taxing harmful activities. And, and these taxes don't tell you you can't do the thing you want to do. They just say you're causing harm when you do it. And it's, it's totally fair to ask that you pay recompense, recompense uh, to the people you're harming when you do that thing. So, Professor Frank, why don't we jump right in into your tax proposals for, for climate change, carbon tax, and, and such so, uh, because as you, as you mentioned, we could have a very realistic way of encouraging people to use renewables or uh, whether use, using social pressure to encourage people to use solar panels on their roofs. Uh, those are very easily accessible and doable ways to promote a green economy. Yeah, the, the climate conversation now uh, seems to me to have made some progress from where we were a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, I, in the book, I've, I've got a, uh, a picture of 
Inhofa, the senator from Oklahoma, he has brought a snowball into the, onto the Senate floor as proof that global warming is a hoax. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I think he would not do that today. Uh, uh, he, he was uh, ridiculed for doing it when he did it, but he would be so roundly rid ridiculed for doing something like that today that I don't, I don't think he would feel any inclination to make a gesture like that. The, the people who are saying climate change is a, a, a hoax perpetrated by this and that, that other moneyed interest are, 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 are more silent now than they used to be, and that's progress. Uh, but we're not seeing any really effective action on climate change. I think the, the conversation is now stalled at a different level. We, we, we know it's a problem. We know we ought to do something about it. But uh, I think the sense now is that perhaps there's nothing we can do about it. Maybe it's, it's too late. Uh, and, that, and that even if there were something we could do about it, the cost of doing it would be so vast that uh, it, would, it would be unthinkable for voters to be willing to bear that cost unless they were faced with human extinction extinction tomorrow you know if it's if it's 10 years from now even or 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 20 or 30 that's too far away for people to be willing to accept the current sacrifice uh i think we so that's an impasse uh in the, in the conversation i i think two things need to happen to break out of that one is is that i think more people need to know about the technical possibilities for sol solving the problem. Uh, and here I would recommend another of Ezra Klein's podcast conversations. Uh, it, it, it was with Saul Griffith, an energy expert. He knows more about the input and out output systems, where energy come from, where the emissions go, and, and what options we have. Uh, it would be a, a monumental task to get emissions down to zero in 10 years. But uh, if you'll listen to his, his accounting, uh, it's one that is uh, eminently doable. Uh, it would require a mobilization on the scale of what we did during World War II, but we did a mobilization on that scale at that time. It didn't uh, wreck society, not only didn't wreck society, it brought society closer together. Uh, it was very expensive, uh, uh, and I think uh, his, his uh, prescription is we need to make financing available so that everybody can can adopt the, the green energy innovations, not just wealthy families, which are mo mostly what we're seeing now. Uh, so we need to make this all available essentially for free to people, but but it doesn't address how we would do that. and. And I think that's the, the next hurdle is how, how do we pay for all this? And, and that's where I think the, uh, a clearer understanding of how behavioral contagion has shaped our spending patterns uh, would reveal to us that we could actually pay for, for, for that expense without really having to demand many painful sacrifices from anyone. And, and, and the reason is that virtually all of the income gains for the last 50 years, 1970 roughly, was the turning point, have gone to people at the top of the income ladder. They've been doing what's completely normal for everybody at every income level. They've been spending more. That's what poor people do when they get more money. That's what rich people do. They've been building bigger mansions, uh, buying more expensive cars. They've, they've, 
spent more on their daughter's wedding receptions. The average reception in the U.S. now is $36,000. It was $10,000 in inflation-adjusted terms in 1980. Nobody's happier today because they're spending three times as much on wedding receptions. It's just raised the bar that de defines what people think of as adequate. You know, I, I never heard of a destination wedding when I was, was uh, young. <laughs> my, my kids are going to destination bachelor parties now. Uh, they don't particularly uh, uh, like spending the money to do that, but that's become the custom. And so that's what they do. If people at the top were taxed more heavily, and we could talk about whether income taxation or consumption taxation would make more sense, uh, but that's a detail. I think if they were taxed more heavily, they would have less money to spend on such things and they would spend less. And what would happen as a result of that is that when all spend less on those things, nobody would be any less happy. It would just be that the expectation would be that the new normal de the defines what we do here. Uh, the people in the middle don't look to the people at the top when they're taking cues about what to do. They, they, their peers are the ones who influence them, but there's a group just below the top and, and they s socialize with the people at the top. So when the top build uh, smaller mansions and have less expensive wedding receptions, so would the people just below the top and that would cascade down to the people just below them and we would see uh, reduced growth in private consumption expenditures all up and down the income ladder. Nobody would be any less happy. If you've, if you've lived in countries with lower income, you'll remember that, that you got used to the new seemed to be uh, a different life drama in any fundamental way because the, the people were living in smaller houses uh, than you were used to living at home. So, so that would free up uh, many trillions of dollars uh, over the next decade. And that's what we need to spend in order to get this done. Uh, the people at the top resist those moves. They've spent enormous amounts of money lobbying to, to keep their tax rates lower, not higher. But I, I think that's, uh, I, I call that, uh, that behavior uh, one that's we've seen because of, of the perhaps the greatest cognitive illusion of all out there. <laughs> the mother of all co cognitive illusions because the damage it's caused is so unbelievably uh, epic in scale. Uh, people think they'd be less able to buy what they want if their taxes went up, but uh, they're not worried about not being able to buy what they need. They're certainly nobody's proposing a tax on the wealthy that would have any threat to their ability to buy what they need. What are they worried about then? They're worried about their ability to buy life special extras. Well, what are those things? They're, they're the things that are scarce in either a, a physical or a social sense. Uh, there can only be one car that's best or fastest. You want that if that's what you want, uh, that's scarce. But to get those things, other people like you want them too, what do you have to do? You have to outbid those other people. And here's what people don't see. Uh, when their taxes go up, the taxes of other people like them go up too. And that means that their relative bidding power is completely unaffected by the move. The, the same penthouse apartments with sweeping views of Central Park end up in the hands of the same high bidders as before. 
if you're worried that a foreign oligarch is going to outbid you, put a foreign uh, levy on the, the exchange of property like that. Uh, people, when they think about how higher taxes would affect them, uh, you know, the, the nat natural cognitive algorithm would be to, to think about the effect of any event. Well, how did I feel about it the last time that happened? So you try to think back to when your taxes went up the last time. That doesn't work in the current environment because taxes on the rich have been going down steadily. They, they were 92% during World War II at the top level. They're, they were 70% when I graduated from college in 1966. Uh, in Reagan's first, first term, they had fallen to 50%. They're 37% now. Uh, there have been tiny moves upwards occasionally during that, that spell, but, but too small to notice or remember. So you can't think about how higher taxes would affect you in that normal way. So plan B, what do you do? You, well, you know, if your taxes go up, you'll have less money to spend. That's true. Nobody would argue against that claim. And so you try to think back to the times when you had less money to spend. Uh, even if you lead a charmed life, there have been such times, uh, almost certainly, in, in your life. You had a bad business year. You got a divorce. You had a home fire. A health crisis, maybe your son got arrested, you need to hire a, a trophy lawyer to get him uh, out of jail. All those times you had less income, all those times, as you vividly remember, you were very, very unhappy about uh, that move. But what you don't remember is that each one of those times was a time when you had less money and everybody else had the same amount of money as before. Yes, you were less able to bid for what you want during those times, but that's not the way it would be if you paid higher taxes. Exactly. Uh, I, I see uh, in the back of your bookshelf, you have Thomas Piketty's uh, Capital, uh, the, the famous book, and, and so many new, new literature have emerged in the past couple of years about how the rich are paying lower and lower taxes to triumph of in, uh, injustice and such. So. Uh, and, and maybe we could just go a little bit deeper on your proposal, especially how you mentioned the detail of whether income taxation versus consumption taxation, which would work better in, in this context. Yeah, the, the rich think they've won this battle by getting lower tax rates. rates. Uh, my claim is that they've actually shot themselves in the foot. You know, they've, <laughs> they've spent more on absolute consumption to no useful end and have robbed themselves of the of the climate mitigation me measures, the hospital surge capacity. You know, when we run out of ventilators, they're not going to get one either. Uh, so so they, they through the strategy that they pursued. But, but uh, as to your question about whether to tax income or consumption, uh, if, if you focus on the logic of taxing harmful activities, uh, Earning income isn't a harmful thing. Uh, we, we, a lot of people have argued that, well, when societies get richer, no, nobody really gains. We just get used to it. That's true for a lot of consumption activities, but it's not true generally for the wealth level of a society. Uh, if, you, if you ask, would it be better to be in the top 5% today or in the top 5% in 1880, for example, uh, very few people would want to be in the top 5% in 1880. Why? Because if you were in the top 5% there and you had five kids, three of them were going to die before they got to be 10 years old. Uh, 
And the reason it doesn't happen is because we're so much wealthier now. So wealth is a good thing. Uh, we don't want to tax uh, the, the, the things that bring us better lives. Uh, but beyond a certain point, consumption uh, doesn't have any really uh, powerful beneficial effect on the quality of people's lives. If, if all the mansions were to double in size, if all the, the wedding celebrations were to become twice as expensive, nobody would be any whit happier after that happened than they are now. That's, that's something we can, that's one of the few robust findings that comes out of the literature on the determinants of human well-being. Uh, that beyond a certain point, uh, nobody would, uh, and yet when others consume beyond that point, it puts pressure on others to do likewise. Uh, if you're a billionaire and you stage a wedding reception for your daughter that is way less elaborate than what people in your circle do, then uh, the guests go away, say, oh, what, what's the matter with Frank? He didn't understand what an important day this was for his daughter. If we all spent less, that would be fine. But if I spend less, not so much. And that that's, is why consumption tax could. That, that's the reason why a steeply progressive consumption tax would really target the inefficiency in the economy much more uh, uh, acutely than a tax on income. Uh, if we tax income, we're taxing spending and we're taxing savings too. Savings is not a bad thing. Why do we want to tax savings? Exempt savings from tax. Uh, uh, put it in an account like we do. So the way you would administer a progressive consumption tax is you would say, report your income to the IRS the way you do now. Uh, simplify that uh, in the process, of course. That would be a good thing to do independently of anything else you did. So report your income, then document your savings. We do that now for tax-sheltered retirement accounts. The difference between those two numbers, your income minus your savings, that's how much you spent during the year. Take off a big standard e exemption, that's your taxable consumption. Uh, have have uh, very low rates on that, that uh, taxable consumption to start. Once you get up, beyond a million, uh, two million a year of taxable consumption, the rates can go above 100% even. Nobody's gonna say society will uh, grind to a halt if we discourage billionaires from putting another wing on their mansion. Uh, they, they will instead put those dollars somewhere else where the, they'll do some good and the extra investment that will be uh, channeled in, in, in the capital market to useful projects will in the end uh, cause the economy to grow more quickly. We, we think growth, oh, that's a bad thing. Well, no, it's not a bad thing. It's growth in certain kinds of things that's bad. So if we tax the growth of horrible things, we can keep that growth in, in check while encouraging growth of useful things. If you take piano lessons, the amount you pay your teacher uh, is part of national income. If that number gets bigger because people have, have more money to spend on such things, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Uh, on taxation, I wouldn't be really remiss if I don't ask you this question uh, that Professor Branko Milanovic and I were, were talking about. And so Professor Milanovic uh, posed this question to me. He said, John Ross in uh, A Theory of Justice argues for the, the replacement of in income taxation by 
the taxation of expenditures. And he gave very logically foolproof reasons. But Professor Milanovic said that uh, we know that all consumption taxation is somewhat regressive. And he asked me whether it's possible to design an expenditure-based system that would be progressive. And we have consumption data by very narrow categories. Uh, could we possibly design tax rates such that system can be progressive and the system would certainly need to be progressive with respect to income and not just uh, consumption only. So is this something that you've uh, been imagining uh, and you've envisioned in your plan? Oh, the, the, the name for the proposal I've been pushing is the progressive consumption tax. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so can you make it progressive? Yeah, I would, I would be, <laughs> I would find myself in a very awkward position. position. The answer to that question is no. You, you were, again, uh, he, here's the simple outline. You report your income to the IRS the way you do now. You document how much you've boosted your stock of savings during the year, the way we do now for 401ks and the like. The difference between those two numbers, that's how much you spent during the year. If that's a small number, we don't tax it at all. If it's a medium-sized number, we tax it lightly. If, it, if it's a big number, if, it, if it's uh, millions of dollars a year, we can tax the bejesus out of it. Uh, we can tax it at 100% uh, if we did that. That means that if you added a wing onto your mansion, it would cost you twice as much to do that as it does now. Wouldn't mean you couldn't do it. It would just cost you twice as much to do it as it does now. And some would say, well, the billionaires, they would, they would do it anyway. What, what do they care? Uh, no. What we know is that local standards influence what you do. In, in New York, there are many billionaires. They could afford to live in 100,000 square feet if they wanted to. Most of them live in apartments that aren't any more than 10,000 square feet. Uh, why don't they live in bigger units? Because real estate prices in New York are so high per square foot that the standard in New York is to live in more compact spaces. And that standard affects what billionaires do as much as it affects what people who are struggling to get by do. If we would move to a Midwest city where real estate prices per square foot are much lower, that same billionaire would live in a unit that was four times that big. So we know that the, the price you pay for the next dollar you spend uh, is gonna influence how you spend your money. So are there any policymakers and legislators on the Capitol Hill, for example, that are, are, are pushing for this kind of vision of uh, progressive consumption tax? How do you foresee as ways in which your proposal could be graduated, uh, gradually translated into legislation and also uh, raise more public awareness, either on a state level or, or federal level? Yeah, the, the Senate did have a bill uh, that it never actually got around to voting on because crisis uh, eruptions in other domains uh, pushed it off the agenda, but it was called the Unlimited Savings Allowance Tax. That's probably a better marketing name than mine. Uh, uh, the, the bill was sponsored by Nunn, uh, the Georgia Democrat, uh, and Domenici, a, a conservative Republican. Uh, it had bipartisan support. Uh, uh, 
there's a never never got on the book. There are books about it. There were two conservative conservative economists from the American Enterprise Institute who advocated a progressive consumption tax in a book in in 2012. Uh, you know, it, it it's not going to get on the agenda during the current legislative session. I think it's fa fairly safe to say, but but we're we're uh, on track to have a major upheaval uh, in this election cycle. Uh, Win Winston Churchill said, "Never waste a good crisis." Uh, you know the 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 prospects for change are at hand. Uh, uh, last year in Virginia, Virginia is no radical hotbed, mind you. It's a it's a fairly middle of the road state politically. Last year, both houses of the state legislature in Virginia flipped. And just two months ago, Virginia enacted the most progressive climate bill of any place. Uh, they're they're going to go carbon neutral before virtually any other state. These are, these are uh, legislators in a middle-of-the-road state who decided now's the time to act. Uh, we will see in November people on the ballot who want to make changes like the ones we've been talking about, uh, really tackling the climate challenge seriously, uh, really investing more heavily in medical research so that when the next pandemic comes, we won't be caught so flat-footed. There'll be candidates who, who want to do that. There'll be candidates aplenty who, who say, no, the, the current path is the right one to be on, and it's our choice. Uh, I, I think we're in a position to, to chart a different course in the relatively short run, and we ought to seize that opportunity. I, I think maybe the greater question for me here is how we get policymakers or legislators uh, to, to, in general, embrace or envision more bold reforms like the ones that you pr propose. Because I think whether it's a consumption tax or whether it's a wealth tax, those are concepts that are very foreign to, to the legislators and, and no offense to the legislators, it seems that it is not an intellectually diverse community in the sense that most of them are just JD lawyers. Uh, they don't know how to write codes or they don't know how to talk about blockchain or Silicon Valley jargons or, or, or even uh, economic concepts like uh, behavioral contagion. So how do you get this group of people to push through reforms, radical reforms that are needed to address some of the urgent problems? Uh, you know, I, I think, uh, the, the case for these reforms is not complicated. Uh, you don't need a PhD in order to be able to understand the, the logic of the arguments in favor of the kinds of changes that we've been talking about. Uh, I, I said near the end of my conversation with Ezra Klein that I, I seldom I had any regrets about not being a billionaire. Uh, I think it would be uh, a, a pain in the ass to be a billionaire in many ways. Uh, but if I were a, a multi-billionaire, uh, what I would do straight away is I would go to Pixar. I would uh, offer their best animation team uh, a salary twice what they earn now if they would come and work for me. Uh, I would have them produce uh, a five-minute video explaining why uh, a stiff carbon tax uh, that was revenue neutral would end up having 
ninety percent of voters with more money to the spend at the end of each month than they have now while at the same time giving everybody a very powerful incentive to adopt cleaner energy choices i think if i if i bought airtime enough to have everyone see that video six or eight times then it would be very hard for a legislator not to vote for a policy like that it would be so fervently demanded from voters who would have no trouble understanding why it would be in everyone's interest to do that that they wouldn't be able to resist it so is this a problem we can solve? I think it is. Uh, I, I, I wish I knew Michael Bloomberg personally or, or Bill Gates personally or, or, or uh, any, any of the people who solve this problem. Uh, you can do this. The government, uh, if, if key people in the government in the next administration were convinced that this were a set of policies that would make sense for everybody to embrace, they could, they could sponsor the communications effort that would get voters behind something like these, these policies. Uh, Professor Frank, I suppose if you were a billionaire, you would be able to get in touch with Bill <laughs> Gates or someone and, and fund your own uh, political candidates with super PACs and try to push through those uh, legislations. I, but, I would. <laughs> uh, the, the interesting argument that I've heard, if, as, at least for criticism for the wealth tax, is that uh, something like the wealth tax would be unconstitutional. And there are many tax proposals that would be simply be knocked down in, in Supreme Court and, and too radical for people to... Uh, accept. So how would you look at those? What are your thoughts on, on wealth tax? Do you see any possible uh, Supreme Court dangers per se for, for your proposal? Yeah, you're, you're really talking to the wrong uh, authority on, on that subject. <laughs> I, I don't have any idea about the constitutionality of it. Right. The economics of a wealth tax uh, make uh, very good sense if it's enforceable. I know there are legitimate questions about uh, the, the, the steps people could take to evade the wealth tax, whether it's practical to make it sufficiently uh, airtight so it would function in the way intended. Uh, I don't know the answer to those questions either. I do know that some smart people have studied them and have uh, insisted after having done so that it would be practical to, to do a wealth tax along the lines proposed by Elizabeth Warren and others. But if we couldn't do that, uh, fine. So switch to a progressive consumption tax. There's, I'm sure, nothing in the, comp the, the Constitution that would limit the progressivity of a tax like that, tax like that, nothing that would limit the, the deductibility of savings. We do that now for, for, for other taxes. Uh, so, so there are plenty of ways to proceed, even if the wealth tax wouldn't be uh, a, a legally viable option. Uh, one part about uh, your conversation uh, with Ezra Klein and a lot of other people about climate change that really inspired me is, is uh, vegetarianism. I have a lot of vegetarian friends who, who advocate for uh, artificial meat products in, in hope that they could replace factory farming. And having read your book, and I think uh, promoting artificial meat or vegetarianism in general could be this great experiment of, of behavioral contagion. So if more people around me are adopting, accepting, embracing vegetarianism, 
that would help reduce uh, meat consumption and therefore help with climate change. But the tricky issue for me here is that artificial meat products, at least at this current stage, unlike uh, solar panels or renewable energies, they're not cheaper. So, so they're not cheaper than their authentic counterparts, rather, uh, unlike solar energy is, is already cheaper than uh, fossil fuel. So the, the issue here is, is, and I suppose the question is, if we simply raise the prices for the meats, people will probably have riots on the street. So you probably can't just tax meat products. So do you think there's a way that we can still encourage people to do the right thing, even though there might not be a readily available cheaper option that exists per se? Yeah, I think the way forward uh, here is much easier than it seems. I, I heard uh, Cory Booker say in an interview, uh, if, if he was asked why he didn't urge people to become vegan, uh, as he himself has chosen to do. Uh, instead, he urges people to consume a little less meat. And his answer, I thought, was uh, instructive. He said if he urged people to go vegan, uh, maybe one-tenth of one percent of his listeners would follow that exhortation. If he asked people to eat a little less meat, maybe meat consumption would go down by two or three percent, so an order of magnitude difference. Uh, so just for practical reasons, he didn't urge people to become vegans. He just urged them to cut back. Uh, uh, most people, uh, when they think about becoming vegan, uh, feel of a, a, a very strong negative re reaction to the prospect of doing that. And so I think the way forward, uh, I, I'm not a vegetarian, uh, but, but I, like most people, feel that uh, throughout much I ate more meat than was good for me. Uh, why did I eat to the degree that I did? Because that was the custom uh, to eat in that fashion among uh, people uh, in, in my uh, immediate family and, and friend group. Uh, and so if we taxed meat uh, in a revenue neutral way, remember uh, the effect of that uh, would be not to burden low and middle income families. The, the rich spend much more on meat than, than people elsewhere in the income distribution. So you tax meat take the revenue from that tax, redistribute it uh, in lump sum amounts to low and middle income families. So they're not damaged by it. They've got more meat. They've got more money at the, the end of each month than they had before you taxed meat. Then each of them uh, faces a completely different set of incentives. They could eat uh, the same amount of meat as before, in which case they'll be spending a lot more, more money uh, than they would if they shifted even slightly in favor of plant-based foods. Uh, and if they shifted in favor of plant-based foods and the friends did likewise, then it would become the custom in their circle to eat less meat and they wouldn't find it burdensome to do so. When they had friends over for dinner, friends wouldn't be offended that they didn't serve such large meat portions as before. And we would see uh, a path towards greatly reduce, reduced meat consumption that wouldn't involve any pain and suffering at all. I, I think maybe the, another greater question here, uh, going back to our idea of uh, behavioral contagion, and, and we've talked about Adam Smith's invisible hand. Uh, I think the, the greater issue here is that people don't often recognize that economic is not an objective science. It is rather built upon a set of 
assumptions that often do not hold true in reality when, when irrational agents come together. So uh, before we, we end the interview, I, I also want to just have a quick discussion with you about how economists could uh, or possibly need a reworking, a fundamental bottoms-up rethink in terms of the way assumptions and, and theories come together. Uh, how do we make sure uh, to, to construct a better set of economic theories that, that uh, promote some of those moral, ethical, or normative angles, and, and, and not just simply include more of behavioral economists' opinions, but rather actually fundamentally reconstruct economics. Maybe that's not necessary, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, uh, don't, don't dismiss the contribution of behavioral economics. I think uh, that's, that's been a very influential movement in the profession, and I think it used to be that, that many economists would get angry uh, uh, and, and react defensively at the mere suggestion that people aren't always the rational actors that they're assumed to be in textbooks. Uh, so, so I think that's been an enormous source of progress within the profession. You know, people do make mistakes. People do have limited capacity to process information. Uh, the mistakes are not uh, random, they're systematic. We can often uh, put information in front of people in ways that, that uh, encourage them to, to, to make choices that are better for them and, and, and the neighbors. The, the default option literature is hugely influential. It's been very, a, a very good development. I think the next wave will will come from uh, a fuller appreciation of Darwin's insight that life is graded on the curve. I think the the basic economic models from the beginning have always assumed that it's just the absolute qualities of of the things you buy that matter. So the uh, the house generates utility according to how many bathrooms it has or how how many square feet it has and so on. Uh, those things matter up to a point, but I think uh, we now know enough to say confidently that it's the relative aspects of things that matter as much or more than the absolute aspects. And the, and the analytical and welfare implications of those two views are, are different in orders of magnitude greater than the welfare in implications of the observation that people make mistakes when they when they make decisions. You know, if you make mistakes, uh, you can read a book, you can uh, talk to a, a, a wise friend, you can you can you can figure out ways of avoiding your tendency to take sunk costs into account when you when you make decisions. Uh, when you have collective action problems, everybody seems to be better, but nobody seems better than before. That's not something you can solve by yourself. We need we need policy with sharp teeth to solve problems like that. So the the problem of insufficient savings uh, was solved only when we taxed people and didn't give them the option of using that money to bid for houses and better school districts. No, we're going to put it aside and we're going to use that those tax revenues to fund a social security check to you each month. If we hadn't done that. The, those dollars would have gone into a fruitless bidding war for houses and better school districts. Uh, and retirees would have been eating pet food in retirement at a much higher rate than they do now. So, so yeah, I think we haven't fully uh, 
incorporated the reasons for many of the policies that we've adopted. We don't regulate safety because people don't know what the risks are uh, so much as we regulate it because people as individuals have incentives to take risks that are misleadingly attractive. You can get ahead in relative terms if you take a risk, but when everybody moves forward uh, in, in absolute terms, nobody makes any progress in relative terms. That's why we regulate safety. You also mentioned uh, this very interesting passage in your book uh, for Adam Smith. You know, he, Adam Smith believed that markets could function adequately only in the context of an elaborate foundation of laws and ethical norms of the sort he described in uh, his book, uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which was published almost two decades before the more famous The Wealth of Nations that everybody talks about. So uh, do you think our, our economic system today has uh, a sufficient set of norms uh, and moral ethical groundworks that help guide economic theories because a lot of people say what the COVID-19 crisis revealed is that we've completely mispriced and mispriced the essential workers. It, it is disastrous uh, capitalism and there's so much reflection going on. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of the theory of moral sentiments. Uh, much of my own work has been uh, related to work uh, that Smith really launched uh, in that book. And I think that the economics profession is probably slow to embrace the emotional dimensions of moral life and, and, and would, would profit by being much more receptive to material along those lines. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I was mainly wondering, uh, for an undergrad like me, or, or someone who does not have a PhD in economics, what one can do to better understand some of those uh, normative aspects of economics. Because for me, you know, I've taken uh, intermediate microeconomics, intermediate macroeconomics. I've done well in those classes, but you know, the, the, those classes, first of all, the, the theories are, are all layered behind many complex layers of assumptions of rationality and such. Yes. So. And even after I understood those models, it seems that it's impossible for me to suddenly incorporate normative angles or moral discussions into, into economics because it seems that economics and philosophy are so far apart from each other. So uh, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. You know, the, the discipline of economics uh, originated uh, in the discipline of moral philosophy. Uh, Hume and Smith were moral philosophers, it was, it was really the, the bedrock of the origin of, of economics. Uh, and so the, the two are not really disjoint in any fundamental way, I don't, I don't believe. Uh, in, in philosophy, in moral philosophy, there are two competing schools. There are the deontologists. They, they say there are certain principles you need to follow no matter what the consequences uh, might be. Uh, and, and so uh, against them are the so-called consequences. They said, uh, no, there aren't uh, immutable principles. The right thing to do is the thing that leads to the best consequences overall. I think economists uh, have a natural tendency to be in the consequentialist camp we weigh the costs and benefits of things quite uh, routinely in, in, in talking about whether some, something ought to happen. And w once you 
adopt that view, it, it, you know, the, the two views aren't so disjoint as they seem, you know, the, the recommendations of the deontologists and the consequentialists agree 95% of the time. Uh, I, I'm a consequentialist, uh, and I think consequentialists have to embrace the idea that the things people care about are the things that have to go into the cost-benefit analysis that determines what we ought to do. You can't separate out feelings of sympathy for others who are in distress. You can't, you can't uh, so, sort of uh, pretend that the pain of others uh, is, is completely disjoint from your own experience. Uh, it's just not hard to integrate these things. I, I think we can embrace uh, most of what mo uh, mo most of us would regard as the normal dimensions of moral life without straying too far from the essence of what the cost-benefit way of thinking demands of us. You know, we want to do the things that produce the best overall outcomes. Suppose you think we shouldn't do that. Uh, what, what would be your argument? You know, we could do A, that would be a better outcome than doing B, but we ought to do B instead. You know, that, that's a hard thing to defend. Interesting. I never really thought it would be such a, I wouldn't say easy, but, but more clear way of directly integrating economics and moral philosophy together. Because I don't think undergrads, at least, were, were really taught uh, foundational economics theories in that way. That, that's coming into the, the textbooks more and more. Uh, I'm a textbook author. You know, we, we just added a, whole, a long chapter on behavioral economics, which includes uh, much of the material we've just discussed uh, in it. Uh, and so I think gradually it's going to find its way in, into the, the curriculum. It's, it's a slow process. Who, who was it? Uh, progress takes place with every funeral. You know, the, the, the people who are wedded to the old ways aren't going to change, but the, the people in your cohort are going to be much more open to a broader view of things, I think. Yeah, I've, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I've talked to scores of podcast interviewers this cycle. Uh, I, I, I can't honestly say I've, I've spoken with a single one who seemed better informed and more nuanced in his views of all this than, than you are. I think I, it was cut out uh, really quickly <laughs> again for the past 30 seconds. Sorry. I, I, I said I have talked to dozens of podcast interviewers uh, about this most recent book of mine, and I can't say that I've spoken to a single one who struck me as more better informed and more nuanced in his thinking about these kinds of issues than you are. <laughs> Thank you, Professor Frank. This is a great compliment. We, 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 we try our best to ask uh, deep, insightful questions to our uh, very renowned guests. It's, it's, it's a great honor for me to talk to you, and, and I think this book uh, open up some fundamental issues that I think will take me a, a long time to think about. I always had a passion for, for philosophical debates as well as economic issues, but uh, as an undergrad, it's, it's really hard to bring those two together. Um, so since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, I just really have to ask you at the very end, what would be your punchline for this interview, whether it's for your thoughts on behavioral contagion or taxation or anything that you may feel compelled to convey to our listeners? 
You know, everybody's focused on the, the COVID crisis. Uh, it's the immediate threat, of course. Uh, it's it's a, a minor league threat when measured against the climate crisis. The climate crisis is, is a vastly bigger threat to our future than, than the pandemics that we're, we're gonna have to be dealing with. And the need to act quickly is absolutely critical. Uh, and the idea that we could enlist one another uh, to speed action to solve that crisis uh, is I think not nearly well enough appreciated. And if people would focus on that and, and take seriously the need to act quickly, I think that would be the, 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 the step I would most hope to see taken as a result of conversations like this. Uh, absolutely. We actually uh, interviewed the uh, Princeton politics professor, uh, a pretty famous libertarian, Keith Whittington, uh, a couple months ago, and we asked him uh, the, the an analogy between uh, climate change and, and uh, coronavirus. And I think the analogy is at least twofold. As you mentioned, one is that climate change is a worldwide time sensitive crisis like COVID. And, and also, second of all, governments must act very, very quickly and decisively uh, in common interest rather than uh, individual preferences per se. So, uh, well, Professor Frank, th that, that was a wonderful interview and this concludes this uh, episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com, uh, follow and review, uh, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, go purchase Professor Robert Frank's book, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. It's a fascinating read. So uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Professor Frank. It was my pleasure, Tiger, and, and I really enjoyed talking with you. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.